Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, Limitless answers. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Nathaniel Gillis with us, a religious demonologist and author. A couple of his works include A Moment Called Man, The Skin That Crawls. After living in a haunted house, Nathaniel spent 20 years researching what had happened to him. Nathaniel has sought to redefine the nature of haunting phenomena, ghosts, and high strangeness, and he's often quoted for his concept of the demonic. The reason they are playing by different rules is because they're playing a different game. Nathaniel Gillis, back on Coast to Coast. Nathaniel, welcome back. Thank you for having me, George. It's always a pleasure to be on with you, and uh, I'm thankful to have this opportunity to talk about my work. How is our favorite demonologist doing? <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to ask them. <laughs> um, no, I'm doing good. We're doing good. Uh, just, you know, very deep in the research and uh, trying to find interconnectivities between different phenomena. Um, but like I said, George, it's always a pleasure to be on with you. That's great. Now, what happened to you a long time ago in that haunted situation? Uh, well, it's very it's very interesting. So I was eight and a half, and I say that because when you're eight, that matters. <laughs> but I was uh, in between eight and nine years old when my parents went to an open house. They were looking to uh, relocate. And so uh, during the open house, my dad led me by the hand into what would become my future room. And uh, it was in that room that very night that I witnessed a full-bodied apparition of a little girl and uh, I can remember three things about that manifestation. Number one, obviously, the very present entity that was in the room. Uh, but more than that, there was a stench that I smelled. It was uh, it smelled like a decomposing 
body or something. I, I can't really tell you. I don't have the vocabulary yet. No. Um, but the entity was malevolent, and it evolved according to my awareness of it. But uh, that was my very first encounter with the phenomenon. Did it haunt you for a long time? Uh, I would say between the ages of 8 and about 16, uh, I went through various stages of manifestation with it. Like I said, so the the first being that I encountered, or the first mask I encountered, was a a very pale little girl. She had black, long hair. She was wearing a white linen dress that uh, looked to have been made, made during the time of the century, or during the turn of the century, rather, uh, but like I said before, when, once I moved in, it evolved into uh, shadow figures, into a smoky apparition that would kind of ball up in the corner of the room. Uh, it was it was a learning curve for me, but that was uh, it was instrumental in the development of my own my own self and my own passion to understand what's going on here. Did it ever attempt to hurt you? Not physically, uh, but I will tell you that the, the nightmares that it induced within me uh, were deeply disturbing. Uh, I can tell you this much: as an eight-year-old kid, there's very, there's very few references I have to you know drugs or or any kind of substance abuse. And yet, uh, during these nightmares, I kept seeing uh, the same same uh, men on a on a. Uh, picnic table. One was uh, had a needle in his arm, and I didn't even know what insulin was at that point. <laughs> wow! And so one had a needle in his arm, and then the other one would always make eye contact with me. Um, and then uh, it was uh, essentially the one individual on the left would uh, place something in his mouth and pull the trigger, and then I would wake up to that looping nightmare. And uh, whatever was in that room would be present again, and it was almost fabricating fear and then feeding off of it. What led you to become a demonologist, Nathaniel? I'll tell you what. I, I, I had this coping mechanism when I was growing up. I mean, when I'm talking about so I'm not, not, not just saying that this being was with me. I'm, and, you know, it's like, a, like I'm exaggerating. No, the entity went to bed with me. It woke up and went to school with me. And so there was this coping mechanism that I employed to where I asked myself, okay, am I afraid of this entity simply because I don't know what it was, right, or what it is. And so mm-hmm. I kind of uh, worked my way around its presence by doing that. But uh, the older I became, the more I realized that I wasn't crazy, this stuff was actually occurring not just to me, but to other kids my age all across the world. And it inspired me to, to want to understand the phenomenon on a deeper level, not on a surface-based level, but something to where I can actually say, okay, I can, I can put it in my hands, I can touch, I can feel. It, you know, and that's what inspired me to get into this. Now, i <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm still trying to understand what a demon is. <laughs> so huh. even the term demonologist seems... Uh, a little bit verbose for me. <laughs> now, who trained you to become a demonologist? Where do you go? Well, I wish there was a school for demonologists. Um, uh, for, for the last 10 years, I was doing it hands-on, right? Like going in and doing cleansings in houses. Uh, but since then, like about two or three years ago, I, I stopped doing cleansings, and I started diving back into the to the academic research. Uh, but I was trained, uh, and this is very interesting, people, people that follow my research are like, what? Um, I got my first taste of spiritual warfare in the Pentecostal movement 
And uh, their tradition was vastly different than what I learned to believe in later on. Uh, but they're the ones that trained me. And, and I could tell you this, even as I was growing up, a lot of what I was experiencing, because it did not fit the blueprint of Pentecostal demonology, um, it wasn't it wasn't a great experience for me because if it didn't fit into their blueprint, it either either I was lying, or it or it didn't happen, or I was just you know uh, just making it larger than it was. But that's where I got my training, and uh, it was all hands on. It was literally you're right in front of someone. What do you do? What do you say? What are you looking for? And uh, so what I started doing though is I realized that there are a lot of people that need help that will never darken the door of a church. And uh, that's what inspired me to go out into the homes actively and do investigations in a more secular venue. What are demons, Nathaniel? Uh, there are two hypotheses out there right now. Uh, the first hypothesis, actually both of them originated in the 16th century. Uh, one of them is that a demon is uh, a malevolent, disembodied ghost, uh, where the entity in and of itself is formerly human. And uh, one of the most ancient ideas about these things, these beings, were that some people can die and they evolve. Others can die and they mutate. So that's one hypothesis. The other one, which was embraced by the Catholic Church in the 16th century, uh, was essentially that all of these beings are horns and hooves. These are all fallen angels or the offspring of fallen angels. Uh, what what I my, my interest as of late though, and this is just because the evidence is leading me to this conclusion, uh, the evidence suggests that what we're looking at is a singular intelligence that is using demonology and various other masks to deceive us and to hide from us. But they're not extraterrestrial. Die and they evolve. Others can die and they mutate. So that's one hypothesis. The other one, which was embraced by the Catholic Church in the 16th century, uh, was essentially that all of these beings are horns and hooves. These are all fallen angels or the offspring of fallen angels. Uh, what what I, my, my interest as of late, though, and this is just because the evidence is leading me to this conclusion, uh, the evidence suggests that what we're looking at is a singular intelligence that is using demonology and various other masks to deceive us and to hide from us. But they're not extraterrestrial, are they? Right. What absolutely. we would call aliens. Right, right. And, and you know, that's, a, that's such a big argument. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the entire field wants to know, what, what, what do you believe? You know, are they demons or aliens? I, I would suggest, again, that uh, the case studies, which we'll get, we'll get into this morning, uh, it will demonstrate a pathology that unites all of this phenomena underneath one umbrella. And I think that's one of the most disturbing aspects of this, is that there is intelligence that's willing to play the role of the demon. What? Um, but yeah, so if we're looking at this intelligence, uh, foremost, uh, they do like to obviously induce us into dream states uh, to, to dislocate our, our consciousness out of our bodies. But more than anything else, what I've noticed is that they like to... Uh, impregnate and they like to take the fetus and, and all of this is again it's surrounding what we would consider to be possession 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. When an exorcist tries to rid a body of a spirit, is it the demon they're trying to get rid of? Yes, yes, they are. Uh, this is a, a very controversial passage of Scripture that I'm going to employ here, but it comes out of the book of Psalms, chapter 109 and verse 6. A lot of Bible scholars and even rabbis have an issue with this because it's one of the cursed texts. And uh, it's indicative of something that pretty much, but you're going to put up there, it rocks people's worlds because it doesn't fit their blueprint of a demonic. Psalms 109 and 6, David is, is talking to God about a man that's been falsely accusing him. And so he asks God, he says, place over that man a possessing, evil, disincarnate man. In other words, put in him a ghost. And, and then he says something that's equally as disturbing, and it says, next to that ghost, place a Satan, an adversary, an accuser. And so there was an age-old argument throughout millennia, and especially within the demonological world, uh, that what a lot of these priests are doing, and even just researchers are doing, when they're trying to, to release that entity from that demoniac, what they're not realizing is, is that fallen angel is attached to an unclean spirit. And by getting rid of the fallen angel, it does not mean we got rid of the unclean spirit. So there, there, there are various hypotheses of what's going on, uh, but essentially the exorcistic rite is designed to get rid of the entity and any kind of residue the entity has authored in that individual. Are these demons attached to the afterlife? 
their pathology is, their belief systems in many cases are, their language preferences are. Uh, especially within the debug phenomenon, we have cases uh, well into the 19th century where whatever is possessing these people, it doesn't fall underneath the linguistic umbrella of Catholicism. I mean, if we're looking at some of these entities, uh, especially, this is interesting, uh, one case in 1999 where an entity possessed a woman, but the entity itself, he was not Jewish, and yet it was in a Jewish area of the world, right? It was in Levant. And so what happened was the the, the woman was Jewish, she, she was rabbinic, and yet the spirit inside of her did not fall underneath the religious tradition of Judaism. And so what they would have to do is go to a, a local village next to them and find someone in Islamia to come and cast this entity out. So what we're witnessing is, is not just their belief systems uh, that they're carrying on in the afterlife, but their language preferences, which I think is fascinating. What are they, though? What are they? age-old question, my friend. Uh, whatever they are, I, I'm leaning towards a, a very unique hypothesis that uh, these are, in fact, mutated ghosts, and that there is something to do with being re-embodied uh, that defines their entire existence. Um, but, you know, even getting back to the Didic, which is what we're talking about tonight, you know, uh, there are two definitions. That's, the that's definition. a Jewish phrase, isn't it? Correct. Yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. And there are two definitions to this that I think will catch a lot of people's attention, okay? Number one, the, the word dibek simply means to attach or to adhere or to cling. Or possess. Correct, correct. And so what's really interesting, though, is it's almost like it's a dual meaning. So the first meaning is to, to possess, to cling to, to attach. The second meaning and this is the one that really, really captured my attention. The second meaning is the impregnation of the dead in the bodies of the living. And you'll see that in the pathology that we'll, we'll reference tonight, or this morning. Interesting take on all of that. What makes them so evil, Nathaniel? I don't know. A lot of these beings, uh, matter of fact, there was a case study in the seventh, or, yeah, in the 17th century where uh, one of these entities was quite literally stalking its own crime scenes. Uh, it had uh, manifested to a man that was picking uh, uh, apples in an orchard, and next thing you know, he put the, the entity possessed this man, and when this man went to the exorcist, they were interrogating the entity and said, you know, why would you... They were looking for pathology and yeah. victimology, which is what we're all looking for. But they asked the entity, they said, why would you pick this individual and not the others? And the entity, in no uncertain terms, claimed that he had committed a crime in life directly underneath that apple tree in that specific orchard. And so what the exorcist realized with that is that this entity was essentially, uh, by all, all measures, a serial killer in a sense, and that it was demonstrating exactly what our serial killers that are alive right now are demonstrating, which is they do stalk their crime scenes, which is alarming to me. But they're not fallen angels, they're not ETs, they're their own grouping. Yes, absolutely. Now, there are pathologies and victimologies uh, that interconnect with UFO abduction phenomenon in such a degree that it's glaringly obvious, at least to me it is and to some of my other colleagues, uh, that there is, a, again, there's a singular intelligence here 
that is masking itself throughout history as demonic. I, I would like to suggest, uh, and I'm just, obviously this is just me, <laughs> uh, so take it with a grain of salt, but I would like to suggest that there is an intelligence that's wearing both the E.T. and the Dibuk and the demonic mask to hide its true identity from us. So even though we believe there are extraterrestrials, you're saying that these demons basically try to mix and confuse us mm -hmm. and pretend that they're also ETs. Yes, yes. I would suggest that uh, if you were to look at an ET, put him in the corner, and then look at a demon, put him in the other corner, turn the lights off, I would guarantee you there's a third intelligence there in the middle that we have not yet considered. Uh, and I'm just saying that based off of the case studies. Uh, what, we, what, we, what we've learned, though, in the field is that it's, it's high time that we stop compartmentalizing the phenomenon to where you have debut victims and then you have experiencers, or you have incubi victims and you have experiencers. Uh, if we're looking at the same intelligence, which it does appear to be that, uh, then we're also looking at case studies that we are now intellectually freed to include into our research. But uh, whatever we're dealing with, it's the same bloody footprints in the snow. These are the same rituals, and uh, it's seemingly it's the same intelligence. When one dies, Nathaniel, will they face these demons, or is that a different plane of existence? I don't know. I could tell you this. Uh, a couple of years back now, I got really deep in my research. And uh, from time to time, if it gets too dark, George, I'll just shut it off. You know what I mean? I, I, I suffer from it a lot of times. Uh, but I uh, was really deep into the abduction phenomenon when uh, I got two random emails from two different accounts uh, within two hours of each other. And both of them were from experiencers or whatever we want to call them. Uh, both of them told me that their guide said that they'll be waiting for me when I die. <clears throat> Oh, that's pleasant. So, that's nice to know, know, right? Yeah, I hope not, my friend. I hope not. <laughs> no, you don't want that happening, that's for sure. No, not at all. Not at all. What has been, in your experience, one of the worst cases of possession you've come across? Oh, it was a murder. And uh, it was one of my own cases. And I'll be very graceful with this. But yeah, there was a, a case that I worked on myself where I, I walked into the house and I was originally supposed to just pray with the family I, and I had no frame of reference for what actually occurred uh, but when I went to the house I could see that uh, there, there was carpet that was cut up and that I was specifically there to kick an entity out and uh, that was that that act of possession because it was uh, a minor that committed the murder um, that was rough uh, because uh, the uh, the girl she had came into the house with a disembodied voice coming out of her mouth, and uh, one of the experienced one of the victims I was working with in the family said that uh, it was it was a it was a female, but it was a male voice, and that without moving her mouth, it was it was coming out of her mouth and and talking to them. Uh, that was pretty alarming because a lot of times again in these possessions. It's a direct confrontation with evil or, or what we would consider to be evil, but it's not to the point where, you know, by the time you get there, the entity has taken control of an individual and accomplished what it wants to. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. 
That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.